It was March 4th, 1990, and Loyola Marymount Lions were battling the Portland, Portland State in the West Coast Conference Tournament. And after a dominant alley-oop dunk while jogging back, the most dominant college basketball player the last two seasons collapsed at midcourt. Medical personnel rushed to aid this man, and this LMU star laid there, and Hank Gathers dies in the middle of the game at midcourt with a heart disorder. The game is canceled along with a tournament. The six foot seven, 23 year old senior who was headed to the NBA is now gone. He seemed healthy and vibrant enough to play. After all, he led the nation in scoring and rebounding. Everything seemed fine on the outside. Even the doctors gave him some medication and they felt confident for him to continue playing basketball. Internally, there was a problem. Internally, he had a problem, and he died. In a sense, the topic today, the disease of self-righteousness, is similar. And what do I mean by that? It's similar in this sense. Externally, everything may look good and fine. may have this perception that I've got it together. You may look moral. You may look like you have a good marriage. You may look like... You're raising good children and have a decent job and hang out with good and decent people. A typical churchgoer, perhaps. And you may even know a lot of biblical truth. You may have sat through years of church school, years of Bible study, sat under biblical preaching and teaching for years and years and years and years. So you know the truth. You could recognize that the world is dissolving around us and why people don't know the truth. You may know the truth. But this is an internal issue. Like I said, everything on the outside may look fine. But today, Jesus Christ addresses the disease of self-righteousness and left untreated could be terminal. Left untreated could be terminal. So we're going to be out of Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17. If you have your Bibles, I highly encourage you to turn to, the, to, to Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17. If you have your phones or your apps, whatever you use, it just makes the uh, following of the sermon a whole lot easier. And in essence, if you want to know how I preach, I just simply go down the verses. The Bible is really my outline. So Mark 2, 13 to 17, as you turn to a little bit of a background, the soul doctor, Jesus Christ, is in action as he encounters and diagnoses the disease of self-righteousness with a group of Pharisees. So let's rise as we read Mark 2, 13 to 17 together. I'll be reading and preaching out of the NASB version. NASB version, Mark 2, 13 to 17. And he went... And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him. And he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with with Jesus and his disciples. For there are many of them. 
and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray your spirit would minister your word to all of our hearts so that we will love your son even more. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. To help you follow along, the progression of this sermon will go as such. It just chronicles what has been uh, goes on in this portion of Scripture. But the progression of the story goes as Jesus drafts the sinner. Jesus drafts the sinner. Next, Jesus dines with the sinners. Jesus dines with the sinners. And finally, Jesus diagnoses the sin. Jesus diagnoses the sin. First portion of Scripture here, the G- Jesus drafts the sinner, verse 13 through 14, it says that he was preaching throughout the shores. He was going on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. What what else would he be doing? He was teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching the gospel. And then verse 14 says, as he passed by, he saw Levi sitting in the tax booth. He saw Levi If you and I were walking along the seashores with the Lord and we saw Levi sitting in his tax booth, what would we have seen? What would the locals have said about Levi, the tax collector? Well, what the people saw is that they saw the sinner. Not a sinner, but the sinner. Not only the sinner, the chief of sinners, they would probably call him. He's public enemy number one. They saw the last person in the whole wide world who God would call to follow him. That's who they saw. He was a hated tax collector. And these tax booths were constant reminders that Rome dominated Israel. That no longer did Israel have their own nation under their own control, but Rome and Caesar was now in control. And basically, Levi was someone who sold his soul to Rome to get rich. That's how they saw him. He sold his soul to Rome. He was a traitor. And in essence, you and I, if we're Jews of the day living in that region, you and I would be handing our money over to a man who owned the same Jewish face as you did, knowing that he would take that money and take give it to Caesar. But not only that, this man, this fellow Jew, would charge you extra, beyond, above and beyond what Caesar requires, so that your fellow countrymen could become very rich. Not just rich, but very rich. So he was perhaps the most hated man in Capernaum, if not the whole region of Galilee. These men were hated, and they were not welcome to partake in the synagogue. They're known as traitors, as if they left the Jewish nation. Even family members perhaps would have rejected him. No longer welcome to come home. There was no more home. They sold off everything to follow Caesar. In some ways, as we saw Levi, we might be thinking, this guy is certainly headed to hell. This is the type of reputation, this is the type of response Levi would have had. This reminds me of a time early on in my coaching days when a grossly, grossly overweight 330-pounder showed up at our high school camp. 
He just showed up. Coach Ed Ogeron laid eyes on this lineman from Verbin Day. But the coach saw something that no other scouts or other schools saw. He, beneath all of that raw ability, unrefined ability, so to speak, he saw a competitor, he saw a champion, he saw a certain fire in the eyes of this young player. He saw an athletic body underneath all of this. And this kid was an unchiseled block of Italian marble. It really was, literally in some sense. But he worked, he worked, he worked, he worked, and he would shed, if not more than 50 pounds, and what he looked like before, and then he looked like a bodybuilder in a few years. Kenechi Udizi became a force, and he became an All-American for us, being an anchor of our defense, and he ended up being drafted as a first-round draft pick in the National Football League. See, Coach Ogeron was able to see past the exterior. So what did Jesus see when he ran into Levi, the tax collector? He didn't see him as the others have saw, saw him. Jesus saw the child of God, a son of God. Jesus saw a desperate, broken sinner needing, not just needing, but wanting forgiveness for his sins. He saw past all that. Jesus saw in Levi a future faithful disciple, a future apostle, someone who will write the, the longest book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. He saw a lot in Matthew. He had big plans for Matthew. Matter of fact, Levi would uh, be given the name Matthew, as I said, and uh, he's the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew means a gift of God, a gift of God. So Jesus drafts him into the kingdom, and not only that, he transforms him from being a curse to the people to being a great blessing. This is what God does. Jesus is in the transformation business. And he says in verse 14, follow me, Levi, come follow me. I got a much better life for you than you rotting in that tax booth. Come follow me. And Levi must have looked around and said, who me? Is he really talking to me? Well, he got up. Luke 5 says that he left everything behind and followed Jesus. He immediately followed him. He did not, Levi did not, let me make this very clear. He did not, Levi did not suffer from the disease of self-righteousness. It's very clear. He did, he did not need to be convinced that he was a sinner. He did not need to be convinced that he needed forgiveness for his sins. He did not need to be convinced that when he died, he was headed towards eternal destruction. Levi knew this. Levi knew this. It reminds me of times when I get to preach in juvenile hall or, or the women's penitentiary. These people are chained up with each other, wearing the same clothes, and they know something went wrong. You don't have to spend a lot of time spending uh, uh, in developing the fact that they're sinners. He was one of those people. He knew, and he jumped at the opportunity to follow Jesus. He knew he was an unworthy sinner who needed to be set free. This was an opportunity, a, a calling of a life, and absolutely, I'm coming. And this is what happened. Levi, the most unlikely of us all, was called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Has Jesus been calling you? I was talking to a dear, dear friend who's been part of our church for many, many years, and she made the observation, you press hard for people to come to Christ, don't you, every week. 
how come, right? And in essence, I, was, I, said, I said, well, we have a lot of new guests coming through, but also anyone who's been sitting here for a long time, I never assumed that they're actual Christians. You know, until I get to know them, until we get to know each other, oh, okay, this, this person is a believer. I never assumed that. So when Jesus calls you, he sees past your weaknesses, when Jesus calls you, he sees you past your family dysfunctions. When Jesus calls you, he sees past your reoccurring sins. And he sees past the opinions of others. He sees what he's designed you for. If, he's, if Jesus Christ is calling you today, he sees beyond all that. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship. Poema, work of art. Work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we will walk in them. Jesus Christ, if He is calling you today, sees the work of art, work of art that you are. He's ready to chisel you into that image. He doesn't see all the other things, and like I said, He's in the restoration business. He calls unworthy sinners like you and me to join Him to be part of His family. His free offer of forgiveness is for anyone who would believe, who would repent of their sins, our sins, and believe in Him as our Lord and Savior. To follow Him as His his disciples. A disciple is one who is submitted to Jesus as Lord. You are my God. I'm going to obey you. I look to obey you. This is the Christian life. And if you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ, or if you're interested in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, Come see me. Come see one of the pastors. Come talk to the person who invited you to church. We would love to talk to you about this. This is why we're here. You're the reason why we're here. And we would love to talk to you about this. But what happens next here in this story is amazing. Jesus dines with the sinners. No longer the sinner, now the sinners. He dines with them all. Verse 15 says, talks about how Levi through a party. Levi is immediately converted. Let's take a look at Levi's life a little bit. Levi's conversion was not a gradual thing. This is an immediate thing. It happened right there in that moment. Levi was a new creation. He was what you call born again. He was a brand new person. And he does the most natural thing for a Christian. What does he do? What it is the most natural thing for a Christian to do is this. He gathers all of his friends, those who he loves. And you know what he does? He gathers them to see Jesus Christ. And it happened to be that his friends are sinners and tax collectors like himself. And when we say sinners, these are known sinners. These are the outcasts. These are the misfits of society. This is what you would call the scum of the earth. This is the type of people that would hang out with Levi. Nobody, no other self-respecting person would hang out with Levi. And Levi perhaps says this, let's come see, come see Jesus. I'm going to throw a big party for him, a big banquet. Luke 5, 29 says he threw a big reception for Jesus. Let's invite everyone we know. Bring all of our friends. I don't care if the other people don't come. Just bring whoever's willing to come. He, Jesus, is willing to dine with us. You need to meet Jesus. And in verse 15, it says, And it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his, Levi's house. A few tax collectors? No, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. 
Levi probably had a bigger house than Peter. Levi had a bigger house than most people, but this house was packed. It was jam-packed. He threw a big party, and he was eating. There, Jesus was eating with all the sinners and tax collectors of this region. And dining with somebody is a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal today, but it, it meant so much more in that time. This is an enormous statement that Jesus was making. Jesus was basically saying, I'm friends with you. I want to hang with you. I want to affirm you. I want to accept you as my friends. It is true when, the, when people say Jesus is the friend of sinners. There's no question. Look, he's proven it right here. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And here's an interesting dynamic as I studied this in verse 15. Was it just Jesus alone eating with the tax collectors and sinners? No. If you looked at verse 15 in the middle, it says many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and who else? His disciples. Mark takes the time to write, and his disciples. This is a big statement because there's an interesting dynamic that's going on in the hearts of the disciples. Okay, where was Levi's territory? Along the what? The seashore. All right, his territory was to tax those who lived along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. And who lived and worked in the lake? Fishermen. Who was taxing the fishermen all these years? Levi. Who are some of his disciples? His well-noted ones, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were fishermen. So in essence, Jesus brings his disciples with him to eat with the tax collectors and sinners who have been robbing them for years after year after year after year after year after year. I wonder what was going on in Peter's heart. Peter doesn't seem like a bashful man. I wonder if he had some words with Jesus, like, are you sure we want to do this? Well, praise God, they're there. Peter, Andrew, James, John needed to forgive Levi and others like this. I mean, they literally needed to, yes, I forgive them. Let's eat with them. And as they're having a banquet, and many were following him there. And as I look and meditate on verse 15, I see a picture of a heavenly scene. There's a banquet here. There's a big party here. And who's the center of attention? Jesus Christ, the Lord. And who's going to be banqueting or eating with Jesus Christ in heaven? Well, all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, different people. But with one thing in common, sinners saved by grace. Amen? And this is a scene of heaven which we look forward to, but we can still live out in the local church. The local church is a gathering of sinners, recovering sinners, a gathering of people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of economic backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of experiences, all kinds of age groups. Although we have things like 55 plus, we're still one big family. This is what we're talking about. And this really is a picture of what the local church should be like, a collection of tax collectors and sinners saved by grace. And, and, and quite frankly, within the local church, there's going to be tension at times. There's going to be sinning against each other at times. Are we able to forgive one another? Are we able to do what Peter, Andrew, James, and John did when they let, forgave Levi and to commune with him like that? There's your hostilities right now. Are you, are you angry towards somebody right now in the local church particularly? Right here, maybe sitting on the other side of the room or right behind you perhaps. 
If there is, Peter, Andrew, James, and John shows the power of the gospel where they're able to forgive and commune and dine with a sinner like Levi and his friends. They're all sinners. But what an amazing scene, right? This is the ideal that we're driving towards here at Evergreen Church for us to be able to love one another and to identify in the gospel because someday this is what's going to be happening forever in heaven. We're going to be with the Lord, being with one another, all sinners saved by grace. This is an amazing scene, but was everybody happy? No. Let's look at, look at verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, of course they go to the disciples, they don't go to Jesus. They didn't have the guts to see Jesus face to face. They said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Not everyone was happy about this. Not everyone. The banquet really acted like a spiritual CAT scan and in essence they were able to scan the internal condition of the Pharisees and they revealed their symptoms. They, did, they were suffering from the disease of self-righteousness. It exposed what was in their heart. It was exposed what was in their minds, how they saw people, how they saw Levi, how they saw themselves in relation to Levi. Turn with me to Luke 18. I think this gives us a good insight. This is a quick parable that I just want to read through and kind of draw out some insights. Luke 18, it's, it's the next book to your right. Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. This, pro- this probably helps to explain what they're thinking as they criticize Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors. And he talked also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. He's talking to the Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, self-righteous, and viewed others with contempt. They looked down on other people. Two men, Jesus tells a story about eternal realities. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There's a tax collector again. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Okay, his first observation, this prayer didn't get past the ceiling. Okay, he's just praying to himself. God is not hearing any of this, but God knows what's going on in him as he's thinking. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And this is what he does. He boasts in what he does. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. This is what they're thinking. This is what they're thinking. But the tax collector standing some distance away, he couldn't even come close, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner. He sees himself as the sinner. And Jesus gives a commentary on this parable. I tell you this. This man went to his house. This man, meaning the tax collector, the humble, repentant tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. The other proud, boastful, self-righteous Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees were prideful, this pride is really the essence of self-righteousness. The disease of self-righteousness is birthed out of the virus of pride. And you may be thinking, if you're a Pharisee, I'm more worthy than them. I deserve this place of honor. 
I deserve to go to heaven. What's wrong with those people, right? Those are some of the symptoms internally that, that the Pharisees may be thinking. Therefore, they had no compassion for the lost. <laughs> no compassion. They don't deserve it. They get, they're getting what they deserve. They had no concern for saving the lost. They, had no ha- they were not happy to see their tax collectors come to Jesus Christ. They, they didn't want this. During our staff meeting, I was reminded by this, about this account. And we, the sermons are group effort. I get a lot of help from a lot of people. Jeffrey Dahmer terrorized Milwaukee in the 80s, 1980s. He was called a Milwaukee cannibal or the Milwaukee monster. This guy was a horrible man. One of the most notorious serial killers of our time. I mean, he was an atheist. He was a serial murderer, pedophile. He did unthinkable things to his victims. We don't even want to talk about these things. He was bad. He was bad. He was dark. But while in prison, while in prison, apparently he gave his life to Jesus Christ. He repented of his sins and gave his life to Christ. Hopefully this is true. Let's say it is true. But when word got out to the public that Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal, upon his death is headed to heaven, there was a big reaction from Christians and non-Christians. One college professor said, if Dahmer is in heaven, I don't want to be there. This is what the Pharisees would have said if they were living today. I don't want to be there. If the sinners and tax collectors are eating with Jesus in this banquet, I don't want to be there. I mean, this is an interesting thing now. This, just meditating on the scriptures for the whole week kind of does something to me. The Lord starts convicting me of things. And I started thinking, who are the tax collectors of sinners of our days? It's not the IRS, okay? It's not them. <laughs> it's not them. You may be thinking it, but it's not them. I mean, you think of murderers, terrorists. I mean, do you even think like pro-choice supporters? I mean, you know, those sort of people that you may look down upon. Are they the prostitutes that you may see walking down the street? Child abusers? I mean, do these type of people come to mind? Let's get a little bit more personal. Let's get closer to home here. Perhaps it's a relative or family member who sinned against you. Perhaps it's a friend who has betrayed you and turned on you. Let me give you an example from my life. A couple weeks ago, I studied in a public library. I was preparing for a sermon for our, for our church. And I, I like going to public libraries and just studying. It's air-conditioned. And, um, and I overheard some of the library workers speaking. And what they were talking about was how to organize a drag queen story time for the children. Drag queen story time. Yeah, I heard someone gasp. I mean, that was kind of my reaction to as I'm in the scriptures. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, library programs designed to indoctrinate little children's minds, right? I mean, this is a grown man wearing a dress, re- reading story stories to little children, just so if we don't understand what we're talking about. And I understood something there as I 
reflect back on that situation, the closer it hits to home, it gets more challenging for us. I mean, if it's some kind of a deviance or some issue way out there, okay, we we, we kind of deal with it. But if it starts to hit closer to home, I mean, I love children. They're the future. And when these type of doctrines are seeping into our schools, our universities, as we pray for teachers and others, when you can't even watch a football game without fast-forwarding the commercials, you know, I mean, some ridiculous things you see. Even kids' cartoons, I mean, we know what I'm talking about. Library for children? Church, don't worry, we're not backing off from the truth. The truth is truth. I mean, we understand this is wrong. And I I think there's definitely a a, a righteous anger, righteous indignation we should all have when we hear about things like this. But within me, I could tell I was getting judgmental. I was like condemning these people as they were talking. Was I actually praying for their souls to be saved? Was I praying for these people who were planning this event to repent and to come to Christ as their Lord and Savior? See, there's one thing we, I clearly understand. It is a battleground over the truth. It's happening right now. You know this. This is the absolute truth. But they still are the mission field. This is why we're not home yet. This is why we're not in the banquet in heaven yet. God has a work. God is still gathering his Levites and and tax collectors of today. And he's using you and I to do that. And you may or may not have an engagement with that person, but is there a disposition to say, what's wrong with those guys? Or is it more, Lord, this is wrong. Please open their eyes to the truth. We call them to repentance. I mean, this is kind of how you know. It's one thing to be righteously angry, which is fine. I think that's a good thing. But at one point, when does it become self-righteous? I mean, these are all things that I deal with too. The disease of self-righteousness, it's tricky, it's sneaky. But let's go to the third point here. Jesus diagnoses the sin, diagnoses the sin, the disease of self-righteousness, verse 17. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. He identifies the issue here. Jesus Christ, the soul doctor, the great physician, identifies the disease. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. In other words, only the sick people come to the doctor for treatment in in simple terms. Meaning if you're not sick, if you don't have cancer, you're not going to receive cancer treatment from the cancer doctor. Of course, you might go through checkups and those sort of things, but only sick people who who know that, who have been diagnosed with the sickness actually go for treatment, right? This makes sense. Jesus is making a matter-of-fact, common-sense statement. And the issue is really self-perception versus reality. The reality is that we're all sick. But how do we see ourselves spiritually? Beth Ann Jones one day was riding on the bus. Beth Ann Jones, his wife to Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in England in the 1900s. And Providential was asked a question by an old gentleman that was riding with her. He asked her, are you a real believer, my dear? I'm just asking the pastor's wife, are you a real believer, my dear? Well, she had no rest as she was haunted by this question. This was bothering her. 
See, Beth Ann grew up attending church all her life. All her life. But the preaching that she sat under assumed Christianity. What do you mean by that? It was, it was very cultural to enter the church then, when she was growing up as a little girl. And the preacher assumed that everyone there was a Christian, that they have repented and are disciples of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the messages were very much geared towards living the good life, living the moral life. And in essence, that's how she grew up. And according to Beth Ann's daughter, Elizabeth Catherwood, Catherwood would say she had said that she had wished that she was a drunkard so that she would know what conversion meant. I mean, Beth Ann Lloyd-Jones lived a great life. She, she, she probably was, would have been an amazing woman before even conversion. Well, what a great person. But Beth Ann Lloyd-Jones had this idea that the gospel was only for prostitutes and drunkards. It's for those guys. It's, it's for the tax collectors and sinners. Well, after two years of sitting under her husband's preaching, the gospel, the gospel was very clear. That being a Christian did not mean simply being a good churchgoer. That's not what it meant. She realized that she was a sinner needing the gospel. Just like a prostitute or drunkard. And she repented and gave her life to Christ under the preaching of her husband. I mean, can you imagine that, right? And the self, her self-perception didn't match. She always thought the gospel is for those people. It's for the sinners. It's for the prostitutes and drunkards. But reality hit when the preaching of the gospel, preaching of sin, preaching of judgment, preaching that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Every single one of us, whether you're a prostitute or a drunkard or just a good church-going person, we all need the gospel. This is a concern for me as, I, as, as, as my own children grew up in a Christian environment, Christian school, Christian church. I'm a pastor now. I'm concerned for all of our youth in terms of how do we disciple them to not just have the right answers, to not live the perfect life, but to trust in the perfect life, Jesus Christ himself. This is a concern of mine. There's a lot of right answers. This is like, they shouldn't be like that. What's wrong with them? There's, we understand the truth. But do we know the truth? Do we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? This is my concern. This is my concern, quite frankly. I'm not just concerned for the youth or the young people. I'm concerned for all of us, quite frankly. Because we are a decent group here. Great people. Admirable people I respect, admire, and greatly What's the main idea here as we conclude our sermon? What is the main idea of this message? Is I want you to just, if you remember nothing else, I want you to remember this. Let's look at verse 17 at the end. This is the main idea. Mark 2, 17b. Okay, the second portion after the semicolon on my Bible. Jesus makes it plainly clear who he came to save. And we need to understand this. This is it. I did not come to call the righteous, comma, but sinners. 
This is what we need to understand. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I did not come to call the self-righteous, but the broken sinner, is what he's saying. And the danger of not treating this disease of self-righteousness is terminal. You could be sitting here all your life. You could be like Beth Ann Jones, even married to a pastor, and think that you are saved because you're good. I've known many professing Christians who we would think are Christians, but there's grave concerns there. That's a privilege I have as a pastor, as an under-pastor of of Jesus Christ. It's a frightening thing for me. And self-righteousness, the disease of self-righteousness, leaves you blinded. You cannot even see past yourself. Or others may be able to feel it and see it. Or maybe not, because everything else seems so good. If any of us are suffering from the disease of self-righteousness, basically, the Lord is saying, you're in a terminal condition unless you change. Because he did not come for you. He didn't come for you. He's not calling you. Because you're too deaf to hear anyway. Even if he says, follow me, you're not going to hear him anyway. It's a frightening thing. This is one of those deals where it says, Lord, Lord, did I not know you in the end? I don't know you. Depart from me into the outer darkness. That, this is a, these are one of the frightening verses for church-going people. This is one of the verses where that is very sobering when you think about it. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Look what the Lord says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. They, they know they're broken sinners. They're unworthy sinners. Not proud and haughty in spirit. Low, poor in spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's from the Old Testament. How about the book of Matthew again? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest for your souls. This is the type of woman, this is the type of man that the Lord is looking for. This is the type of child that the Lord is looking for. Let's conclude here, and uh, I'm going to give us some tests. This is a some diag- self-diagnostic tests. You know, I'm going to answer some, ask some questions to see if we could draw out some symptoms. We're going to go into the spiritual CAT scan. To, uh, together right now and get into that tube and, and we're going to see some things inside our hearts, okay? We'll do this together. Trust me, I've been <laughs> scanning myself all week long on this stuff. Um, question number one. Self-diagnostic test. Do you compare yourself with others to make yourself feel good? So let me just give an internal dialogue. I'm not like her. I don't think like that. I'm not so bad. So do you compare yourself with others? Question mark. That's number one. These are going to be quick. Number two, do you exclusively exclusively live in a Christian bubble? Are you only looking to live in a Christian bubble? I only want to hang out with uh, Christians or professing Christians. Is that you? Now, if you're into homeschooling, praise God. I think that's a good thing if you're called to do that. If you're sending your kids to Christian school, that's great. Praise God. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm talking exclusively. That's all you want to hang out with. You know? Uh, there could be a problem there. 
There could be a problem there. Minimally, you're not following the pattern of the Lord. And I, I say that exclusively, right? I just want to make sure I'm clear about this. Number three, think about that tax collector in your life. It could be a public figure or it could be someone very close to you who's wounded you very badly. What would your reaction be if you found out they came to Jesus Christ as, as a redeemed man or woman? Would you be a yes? Or would you, would you be unhappy? So if your tax, personal tax collector repented and gave their life to Christ, would you be happy or sad? Question mark. Fourthly and finally, do you believe that you actually deserve to go to heaven more than somebody else? Do you actually believe that you deserve to go to heaven? These are, these are important questions, and I'm sure there are other great questions that may come to mind, but think through these things, brothers and sisters. Think through this, friends. This is an important thing. In other words, like if God were to ask you when you die, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be, right? That's kind of, that should kind of be a similar type of diagnostic test. I want to give some encouragement. We're, we're, about, we're about finished here. If you recognize any of these symptoms, any symptoms of self-righteousness, the disease of self-righteousness, now, I believe you could be a Christian, I mean, at some levels, you know, I mean, we all deal with pride. Be encouraged, because if you recognize any of these symptoms, it's not a full-blown issue. You're, you're able to see. You're not completely blinded or deaf to your condition. So all we got to do here is come to the great physician of the soul today. That's really it. You know, as a Christian, we need to repent of these things. And uh, I talked to a dear friend about the Christian life, and I want to make it clear, it isn't like, it's just like a light thing. I repent and I'm, I'm changed all of a sudden. I mean, it's a constant thing. It's a process, right? It's a, it's a day-to-day battle. Some of us, it may be a moment-to-moment thing. Engage in that treatment. Engage them in, in that treatment. It's not good enough that, no, okay, I struggle with this. No, I'll do something about it. Take you to the Lord daily. Commune with the Lord. Eat with the Lord daily and talk to Him about these things. Confess these things. Agree with Him. He already knows. So there's no reason hiding these things. He's the doctor. He gets all the reports first, okay? He has all the reports first. But if you're a non-believer and you know that you've, you believe that Man, I've been thinking this way, and I have never turned to Christ as my Lord and Savior. You could do it today. This is why we're here. I mean, isn't God, our Lord Jesus Christ, amazing? He's completely different from all of us in this way. I mean, He is completely different. And if you're honest, as a, as a, even as a professing believer, you know there are some symptoms there. You know there is, at some level, okay? And what a great thing, our Lord no longer sees you as a sinner or tax collector. He sees you as a son of God in the process of chiseling you into that image. Is he not? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him on a mission to seek out sinners. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you how true it is that we could do nothing on our own to enter the kingdom of heaven.
You see, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. What's impossible, man, was possible through God. Lord, we are desperate sinners. Even if we are prostitute or drunkard, and if we're not, we're desperate sinners. We're all tax collectors. Father, to what degree we struggle with the disease of self-righteousness, I pray we would repent to you, Lord. We'd agree with these things, and Lord, we would, you would humble us, Lord, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise, you say. Lord, give us the, the awareness, the resolve, the motivation to enter into this temptation even against this battle, battle this temptation even more. Jesus, you are our rock. We don't build our lives on sand of ourselves, but we build our lives on you, the rock. And so we thank you for being our rock. Thank you for being our foundation. Thank you for being our validation. Thank you for being our reason to enter the kingdom of heavens if we were asked that question by the Father someday. You're the rock. And we thank you, Lord. Help us to know this more so that we will love you more. And I pray for anyone in here that have never trusted in you, Jesus, as the Lord and Savior, that you will prick their hearts right now and they'll be drawn to pursue you. They'll come see one of the pastors to talk to you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, and thank you for that great celebration that the angels will be doing when one lost sinner comes to know you, Lord. The one sheep that gets lost, Lord, and that comes back. The prodigal son that comes back, the coin that was lost. I pray, Lord, that they will know there will be a huge celebration in heaven over their restored soul. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.